Uh, we are still in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're still in our Dress the Mess series. Uh, and today I'm going to have to uh, make my brief recap actually brief because we have a lot to cover today. So um, let me see how quickly I can get through this. Okay, Paul spent 14 or 15 months uh, helping establish the Corinthian church in a city obviously called Corinth. And he developed a special relationship with this church because he spent all that time with them. So he actually became very close to them and they were, uh, he was heavily invested in their success. But after leaving them, he thought everything was okay. Uh, they fell victim to a lot of pressure that they were getting from uh, the Greco-Roman culture around them and the pagan natives. So basically, they started compromising some of their values, uh, and they were being persuaded by these pagan natives to make these compromises. Uh, and when Paul found out, he wrote a series of letters, four letters, two of which were inspired, which are the two we're studying. So when he wrote the first letter, he's thinking to himself, okay, this is going to get them. This will change things for us. And so he goes back to visit them after the first letter, and it didn't change anything, nothing. And they actually had persuaded uh, quite a few of them to turn against him. So he left and wrote a second letter. Uh, in the second letter, he was kind of defending himself against all the false accusations that were coming from all these false teachers. Uh, and he was also trying to encourage them to get back where they were. Now, last week, he started this direct dialogue where he just addressed the foolishness of all these false teachers. He basically, you start seeing last week and this week and next week, that he's at that point, you ever been at that point with somebody where you're like, I'm done. Okay, now I'm just going to tell you how it is. You know how you kind of, you're politically correct and nice, and then one day you go, okay, no more. You're an idiot. You know what I mean? In a loving Jesus type way, then say, bless their heart, and everything's all right. But that's where he was at. So he got pretty intense with them, uh, and this week he's going to kind of ramp up that intensity uh, because Paul was not going to allow these corrupted teachers to try to cancel out all the hard work he'd done. So I titled this message, uh, Canceling the Corrupted. That was pretty quick, wasn't it? Not bad, huh? All right, <laughs> All right so we're going to jump into today's lesson. We're going to be in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll get through 15 verses, Lord willing. Uh, starting in verse 1, he says, I hope you will put up with a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me. Okay, now in chapter 10, Paul pointed out that these false teachers, um, basically he's saying they were making comparisons of themselves to him, Right? And they were just stupid comparisons. They were foolish comparisons. And Paul finally said, that's when he had enough. And he said, okay, now I'm going to call you out. Because they were comparing Paul to uh, their teachings. And they were saying that their teachings were superior because they had a special superior relationship with God that only certain people could attain. So Paul pointed out how false it was and how corrupt their comparisons were. And he points it out in great detail. But the biggest thing was he was saying these comparisons are stupid because... They're based on a false standard. You set up a standard that's a lie. You convince everybody of that lie and then build all your comparisons one block at a time, one lie at a time, when all of it's false. So he kind of pointed them out and called them out on that. Uh, and the only people that they would use as a positive comparison for themselves were not any of the other apostles or disciples. They would find other false teachers to compare themselves to because that way, you know, they could look good in that instance. So he called them out. So in chapter 11... Paul decided to use some of his own comparisons. And that's why he started out chapter 11 being so sarcastic. And when he's saying, oh, I'm sorry, just put up with my foolishness a little bit longer. Because the false teachers were saying his teachings were foolish. And he was getting really frustrated, and rightfully so, because for believers to fall prey to some of the dumb things that these false teachers were teaching would frustrate anybody, especially the person who had invested so much time in you. So he was very frustrated with them, and especially because they knew better. But when you get in the habit of compromising the truth, you weaken your spiritual state. And they had weakened their spiritual state to a point where they were easily 
fooled, and so Paul was going to step up and, and go to battle for him. Now, most likely, the people of Corinth had started substituting their own personal study of the Bible with trusting in these boastful, foolish teachers. Because these teachers blew their own horn all the time. They were constantly talking about how great they are, how much more superior their knowledge was and their wisdom and their spirituality. And if they can convince them to not read the word of God and just trust what they're saying, when you get in that zone, you're in danger. Because you can be easily manipulated, and that's kind of where they found themselves at this time. Now, the Greco-Roman culture put a lot of stock in wealth. They put a lot of stock uh, in philosophy. They put a lot of stock in, in the wisdom of the world and prestige. Most likely, these false teachers were getting this kind of attention because they may have had all that. They may have been wealthy. They may have held prestigious positions at one time. But they were taking full advantage of it, knowing that the culture had been telling them, well, if you're wealthy and you're important, then God must love you, is basically what was going on. So they took advantage of that completely. But here's the thing that they were forgetting and that Paul has told them throughout these two books often. God doesn't use wealth and social standing in the same criteria that the world uses for the determining who's important. God doesn't use that criteria when he's choosing his teachers. Okay, because 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, listen to what he said. He said, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Verse 27, instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose despised things of the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. See, God, God's criteria is pretty simple when he's looking for someone to, to use in service. God wants someone who will humbly surrender to his word and will submit to his will. When somebody can do that, God can use them. Now, when you're full of yourself and you think it's all about you, God can't use a person like that. That's why these false teachers were of no use to him whatsoever. And historically, if you follow throughout the scriptures, most of the time the powerful people of God uh, were of low status and menial financial means. Not because wealth or status is wrong, per se, because if you think about it, Abraham had a lot of wealth, and God used him, and he was a good man. He would be a billionaire on our standards. And Paul, at one time, had great standing and great status. So it's not that God can't ever use people like that. It's just generally he uses the more simple things. And the reason is, look, I'm saying he uses simple people when he does, you know. But uh, the reason is, is God doesn't want people believing someone based on their reputation, he, does, he wants people to believe teachers because they're bringing the truth, right? And the reason Israel chose their first king when God told them not to was they wanted someone that looked important. I mean, they picked Saul, who was this big, good-looking, strapping guy, says he was head and shoulders above all the other men, and he was absolutely worthless because they chose him for the criteria God did not, uh, what he looked like and in, in, in his status. So this is the kind of people that God uses, and that's why Paul, in verses 2 through 4, uh, he discussed... You know, how he shared uh, the righteous jealousy of God. Okay, now this is an interesting section. Look at this, 2 Corinthians eleven two. He said, for I am jealous for you with the jealousy of, you can answer that, God himself. With the jealousy of? God himself. I promised, uh, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband. Okay, now, Paul said, I'm jealous for you with, a, with the jealousy of God himself. First thing you've got to realize is the only time that jealousy can be righteous is when God is the one who's jealous. Okay? 
that's the only time. I even had somebody tell me one time, well, jealousy is not always sin if you're jealous with a righteous. I'm like, I don't think that's possible. I don't think there's a way to be jealous in a righteous way. But God's jealousy is different because God's jealousy isn't based on himself. It's not based on him wanting something for himself. God's jealousy is the only one that can be righteous because it's selfless. It's based on his passion and love for his creation. The reason he's jealous for your attention is he wants to be able to bless you. He wants to be able to use you. And so when he jealously craves your attention, it's not because he needs it. It's because you need it in order for him to bless you. That's the only time jealousy can actually be righteous. So Paul illustrated this in a really cool way, and he uses this metaphor about engagement or betrothal, same thing. So he compared the Corinthians' lack of commitment and their lack of dedication to God to a promised bride committing infidelity during her engagement, right? In 1 Corinthians 1.4, here's why I use this illustration. In 1 Corinthians um, uh, 4.15, rather, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul said that he considered the Corinthians his children. Basically, he considered himself the spiritual father of the Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father, for I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So he considered himself their father anyway. So this illustration of the father of a bride made sense. Now it's important to remember, at this time, arranged marriages were very common. You want to know something else? They were very successful. I'm not saying we should arrange them. <laughs> but if you've ever had one of your daughters bring home a guy you don't like, you're thinking, I'm all for that. Right? And if your daughter's done that, raise your... No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your... No, but... But arranged marriages were very, very common in Paul's day. And the fathers of a young man and the fathers of a young woman, sometimes when they were, before they were even born, they would make arrangements that my son will marry your daughter if you have a daughter. Or if, they, you know, if they've already been born, they, they come together and they come to terms on this arranged marriage. Now, when the deal is made, the young man and the young woman are considered betrothed or engaged. As soon as that deal is completed... They didn't come and bring a ring and get down on one knee at the gazebo at the lake or anything like that. It was like, hey, you don't to? You don't to? You know, it's basically what it was. Because they were, they were betrothed. And, and engaged couples back then, they took it a lot more serious than we do. Uh, you'll hear people say, well, I'm not married yet. I'm like, well, I'm sure the other person loved to hear that, you know. But they took it way differently than we do. They took it very serious. When an engaged couple, when a couple became engaged, they would start calling them husband and wife before the ceremony. Before they were even married, they were considered to be husband and wife. And if a betrothed woman was unfaithful, it was actually considered adultery, even though they weren't married yet. And that's so serious that at that time, her adultery would have been considered a death penalty offense. At that time, adultery was considered a death penalty offense. So as their spiritual father, Paul had promised his daughter, the Corinthians to one groom, one husband, right? And that future groom that she was betrothed to, that the Corinthian church was betrothed to, was Christ. He was preparing his daughter to be the bride of Christ. So Paul's jealousy was that of a father whose betrothed daughter started getting wandering eyes. Okay? So he was looking at her like, oh, no. She's starting to get wandering eyes, and she's betrothed. See, his jealousy wasn't about himself. That's why it was a godly jealousy. It was more anxiety over the possible danger of his daughter making that mistake. 
making that mistake of being in, of committing infidelity. Now, if his daughters uh, were to commit that infidelity, she would be considered guilty of adultery, as we just said. And that one act would not only bring shame on his daughter, it would bring shame on his entire family. So this is an anxiety, this jealousy that he had for, for the church, right? And, and it would be considered, if she did that, it would be considered disrespecting the groom and disregarding the laws of God. And again, that would have ended in costing her her life. So like the father of the bride, Paul feared the Corinthians had developed a wandering eye. He looked at them as a bride being prepared for Christ, yet here they are listening to false teachers and getting involved with pagans, right? So now that was like committing adultery against your future bridegroom because you're betrothed. This church was betrothed to Jesus, and yet they started listening to the false teachers of idol gods, and that was worrying him because just like committing adultery in an engagement situation at that time could end in a, in a death sentence, so also pulling away from God as a body of Christ or even as a believer, it, death means separation in the Hebrew. It could end in separation from God. Does that mean you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. That's foolish. What it does mean is that you get in the spiritual woodshed. God is no longer going to be able to bless you and use you like he wanted to. It will end just like that. It will end up in spiritual death. So that was what he was talking about here. He was saying, I'm trying to keep you from making a mistake you will regret forever. And that's trying to mix this pagan false teaching in with Christianity. I've got to stop you from doing that. It's like committing adultery, adultery on God. Now, you notice here in verse 3, he says, But I fear that somehow in your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Does anybody else think that that might have been sarcastic? He was there because they did not have devotion and dedication like they were supposed to. And right here he says, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. I think that ship sailed, don't you? Right? And he says, Now listen to this. Just as Eve... I always pause a lot when I read this. Just as Eve, being the woman, Eve, was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. I'm going to get emails. Here we go. But uh, So he was afraid. He was saying, listen, the devil's cunning. He knows how to deceive us. And just like Eve was deceived, I'm scared he will find a cunning way to deceive you also. So let's take a look at that account in Genesis 3. I love this story. It said, the serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals uh, the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God, now, did anybody ever wonder, did animals and people talk normally back then? Because if I were in the garden and a snake started talking to me, I'd be like, I don't want to hear anything you have to say. <laughs> You're a dang snake. Don't talk, right? The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day, he asked the woman, the serpent, did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit uh, eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Of, co of course you may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. She embellished that a little bit. He didn't say touch it, but she did. Verse 4, you won't die, the servant replied to the woman. Now listen to this. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. That part is true. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. That's where he starts getting off the rails. Okay, verse 6. The woman was convinced. The woman was convinced. 
She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. There's the first sense. She coveted what she was not supposed to have. Now, let me put something in here before I continue. People think that Adam and Eve were created sinless. They were not. They were created perfectly by God, but they were only sinless until they had a temptation to test that theory. If they were perfect, like people say, oh, Adam and Eve were made perfect, would they have been able to have been tempted? No, they weren't perfect. They had just didn't have a chance to do anything wrong yet. It's kind of like when your kid's in the car seat, they're probably not going to do a lot wrong. They're in a car seat. That's like saying, look, my child's not getting into anything. Well, they're in a car seat. Let them out. You know what I mean? Same thing. They just didn't have the right criteria. Nothing came to them yet to tempt them, right? Uh, So again, verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Not even an argument from him. Did you notice that? Not even an argument. That could have been anything, and he just shoved it in his mouth, right? Verse 7, at that moment their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame about their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. See, think about this. In all honesty, I love to pick on the Eve thing, but... They both sinned in that moment. They were both weak in that moment. Eve took the fruit she wasn't supposed to eat, and that was trying to get authority she wasn't supposed to have. Adam did nothing. Adam was a big doofus. I'm just saying. Adam's just sitting here, you know, she's naked, which helps. And so Adam's just sitting here looking at his naked woman, and she could have handed him a worm and he would have ate it. She goes, here, okay. He shoved it in his mouth. So he did nothing to take any authority. Nothing. So that was the problem that that both of them sinned. One tried to take authority they weren't supposed to have, and one didn't take any authority whatsoever. But the enemy knows that he doesn't have to reinvent the wheel to convince us to sin. Deceiving people is not that hard. Notice the serpent only slightly changed God's word. Very slightly. He added won't. She said, well, God said the moment we eat of it or even touch it, we will die. And he said, you surely will not die. He changed one word. And then once he changed that one word, he used their sin nature against them by trying to access their pride. And I hate it when people say, I don't have any pride. Yes, you do. Everybody has pride. I don't. Were you proud of that? I'm just kidding. Anyway, but he starts accessing their pride. See, he knew they weren't perfect. He knew they just needed the right temptation. And he's like, well, I mean, okay. You can listen to God if you want to. But I'm going to be honest with you. He's just doing that because he's keeping the best for himself. That's all that is. He wants to be able to boss you around. He wants to be the head guy. And he knows if you eat of that, you're going to be just like him. And now you won't have to answer to him. He played on their pride. And that's how the false teachers were trying to deceive the Corinthians. That's why Paul made this comparison, and it worked. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 11.4. He said, you happily... Put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one we received, or you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe. See, they used the word of God, they just added a few extra interpretations and revelations, a lot like the serpent did in the garden. Right? They were saying, Yes, this is true, you have to believe in Jesus and that there are going to be apostles and disciples, but 
there's going to be some apostles and some disciples that have a special relationship. That's where they start getting off the rails. And they say, and that's us. And eventually, they had these people believing that. And more than likely, more than likely, the enemy knew how much the Corinthians loved status and loved power and loved wealth. And you, I, you can guarantee these people were wealthy, and they probably had status. And so the enemy was saying, well, I mean, God says you're not supposed to do this stuff, but I mean, look at them. That's an apostle for you. I mean, they wear the right stuff. Everybody respects them. Look at all the money they have. Look at the, how people look up to them. Immediately, they were sucked in, just like Eve. They got sucked in by those people. And once they had their trust, they started slowly changing the gospel and changing the very message, the, the same Jesus that they were taught. You see, there's something you have to remember. Not every Jesus in every religion is Jesus. Okay, if you talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses, they will tell you about Jesus, but he's not God. Right? So that's not the same Jesus. You talk to another religion, they'll tell you that Jesus was the, son, was the, the brother of the devil. I'm not making that up. And one was the good son and one was the bad son. That is not the Jesus we preach. There are, some, there are some religions around the world that will acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet and a good man, but not God. Well, then that's not the same Jesus. We can't compromise on who Jesus is. Of all things, you can't compromise on that, right? And he was saying they sucked you in. Now they're teaching you about a totally different Jesus, one that doesn't even exist you got to remember, this is how the enemy works. This is how he works. He hasn't changed. He still works that way today. Why do you think there are so many successful charlatan preachers around the world? Because they give you just enough truth to suck you in and then start changing things. And before long, you'll find that the worship they desire is you worshiping them, not you worshiping God. He's never changed his ways. He still uses a little truth to sell a big lie. And I'm telling you, there's still only one solution. And I, I push this every week. None of this is going to be your problem if you stay close to God through his word. I love how it's put in 2 Timothy 2.15. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly explains what? The word of truth. Meaning you have to know it to be able to correctly explain it. I think the New American Standard says accurately handling the word of truth. That's probably more accurate in that sense. Okay, so if you don't want to be deceived, if you don't want to get sucked into the devil's lies and all these deceptions from the enemy, know the truth. Know the truth, and you will save yourself so much problem. I'm going to move on because I could preach on that forever. Okay, now 2 Corinthians 11, 5 and 6. Here's where he really starts to get salty. He says, but I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these super apostles. I think that's hilarious. Who teach such things. Verse 6. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. We have made this clear to you in every possible way. See, Paul continued his defense by using some of that signature, you know, sarcasm that he uses. I mean, do you really thought, think he thought they were super apostles? No, he was messing with them. He's like, well, I know I may not be as smart as the super apostles over here, the ones that have their special relationship with God. And he's saying, you know, I know what they're telling you. See, did you notice that they said that, that, that he didn't, he said that I may not be able to speak as polished, basically, as they do? The reason he brought that up is this culture, one of the things they were doing, see, they love to promote themselves, these false teachers. They love to lift themselves up. 
right? They wanted you to think they were super apostles. And one of the ways, and almost every deceptive leader still does this to this day, but the way people usually lift themselves up is by tearing other people down, right? And that's exactly what was going on here. They were lifting themselves up and at the same time trying to tear Paul down. And usually if you're going to tear down a good person, you have to lie to do it, right? And that's what was happening. They were lying when they were trying to tear him down, right? So this is what was happening, and they were saying all kinds of things against him, and they were even teaching the Corinthians that Paul wasn't even leadership material. They're saying, seriously, you want to follow this guy? He's not even leadership material. He doesn't, they said his speaking skills were unpolished and unprofessional. Unpolished and unprofessional. And they were saying that because he wasn't a trained speaker, you know, and since he wasn't a trained speaker, that means he obviously isn't qualified to have any authority. See, all of them were politicians. They were trained in the speech. They spoke very polished. They sounded like politicians do on TV. Have you ever listened to a politician speak on TV? And they get asked all these questions, and they speak for three minutes and don't answer any of it. And, everybody, and everybody's too ashamed to go, I don't know what you just said. You know what I mean? So what do you think about this issue? About that issue. And the three minutes later, you're going, I don't even remember what I asked you. You, you know what I mean? That's, they were polished speakers, deceptive. They could be very deceptive. Paul wasn't that way, right? They were just politicians, and he wasn't. And Paul admitted that. He said, listen, I'm not a professional orator. I'll, I'll admit that. I'm not a professional orator. I'm not the politician speaker that you guys are. But what I lack in political speaking and polished professional speaking, I make up for in truth and knowledge. Is what he was saying. I make up for truth and knowledge. Because the words he spoke were not those of great teachers or philosophers like the Greeks wanted to hear. The words that he shared were the word of God. You don't have to be polished but to share the word of God. You just have to be committed to sharing the word of God. The word of God does its own work. Right, look at Galatians 1, 11 and 12. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that uh, the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. Verse 12, I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Right? He was saying, you know what? I'm not that polished. Okay. But I know the word of God, and you know every time I'm teaching you, I'm teaching you his words. And his words are powerful. Right? It's one of those things, sometimes... And even in this day and age, people get impressed with things they shouldn't be impressed by. You know what I mean? I, I, I remember we were talking about Bible one time, and this, this guy had this crazy theory. And somebody brought it up. And I was trying to, okay, I wasn't trying to stay quiet. But, I, you know, I thought about staying quiet. But, man, they were talking about it, and I said, that is nuts. You know better than that. Why would you even, why would you even entertain that thought? Well, he has a doctorate's degree. I'm like, Really? I think Jim Jones did too, and he learned how to make Kool-Aid at a bang-up job making that. You know what I mean? It doesn't, the people get impressed with the wrong things. Listen, they were impressed by the, the status and wealth and the polished nature of these false teachers, but they were teaching a lie, right? He's saying, yeah, I don't have that, but you know what I'm teaching you, I'm proving to you from the Word of God. This is coming from God Himself. Listen, they have to lift themselves up. I don't even try to lift myself up. I want you to remember God when I leave, not me. That was Paul's mindset. That should still be our mindset. I'll be honest with you. When people leave the church, when people are listening online, I don't care if they remember my name. I don't care if they remember anything other than the truth that we teach. 
because it's not me that's going to save him and it's not this church that's going to save him, but the words that we share will. That's what's important. That's what Paul was trying to share with them. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Paul reminded how he'd humbled himself and never asked for anything. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, he said, when, uh, Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's uh, good news to you without expecting anything in return? I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you and didn't have enough to live on, I did not become a financial burden to anyone. For the brothers who came to me from Macedonia brought me all that I needed. I have never been a burden to you, and I never will be. See, Paul had every right to be compensated. Every right to be compensated for being their teacher. He had every right to do that. Right? But he had this fear. He knew that they were putting him down at every turn, these false teachers. And he was afraid that if he took money, that those false teachers would say he's only doing it for the money. If you quit paying him, he'd leave. So he said, just so you couldn't have that argument, even though I had the right to be paid by you, I chose not to so that you wouldn't be able to question my motives. Right? I want you to know that I'm preaching this for one reason, so that you can become closer to Christ. And then he says, even when he was in dire need, he didn't ask them for anything. And you know, they probably noticed when he was in dire need, and were probably expecting him to ask for help. But he didn't. He just waited for the more mature Macedonian believers to come and support him, and they came and supported him. But then he reminded them, he said, you know, I'm robbing them. He wasn't literally kicking the door down to the church and robbing them. What he was saying is, listen, it's your responsibility to care for your church. It's your responsibility to be able to pay your leaders and, and have people that can make this function. He said, but since you're too spiritually immature to do that, the Macedonians love God and you enough that they're doing it for you. So you're robbing them with your immaturity because they're actually paying your financial obligation so that your church will be blessed again, right? And that was really direct and really straightforward. You would think I wouldn't have this battle anymore, but I do. There's a lot of people, I don't know if you guys have ever ran into it, that teach you should never pay anyone in ministry. And ironically, the people that say that are never in ministry. But anyway, they, uh, they say you should never pay people for full-time ministry. And then there's other people who say, well, it's okay to pay full-time ministry and staff just don't pay him much because, heaven forbid, a godly man or woman have the standard of life you do, you know. And I've literally heard that. I even heard somebody one time say that, that people in ministry should be poor. They should be like Jesus. <laughs> I'm going, that's rich. You know what I mean? But this, again, shows spiritual immaturity. That's the same spiritual immaturity they had back then. And Paul had to address this in 1 Timothy, starting in verse 5. He said, elders do the work. Elders who do the work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Basically, don't starve an animal that's working for you. I don't know if I like that comparison. Anyway, uh, and in another place, those who uh, work deserve their pay. See, here's the thing, though. Like Paul, most pastors and most uh, full-time staff members in churches, a lot of them would do it for nothing. And a lot, many of them do, because they're doing it to see the will of God accomplished. So a lot of times, they'll take the high road and not demand it, right? But here's the thing they have to remember. Nobody with any sense goes into ministry to be rich, okay? Because let me tell you something. If that's your retirement plan, come up with another one, right? But they have a right to be, to be cared for. And Paul 
even though he didn't take that right, he still had the right to be cared for. All right. Now let's move on. Second Corinthians eleven ten. He says, as assuredly as the truth uh, of Christ is in me, no one in all of Greece will ever stop me from boasting about this. Why? Because uh, because I don't love you. God knows that I do. Verse 12. But I will continue doing what I have always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. Uh, these people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguised himself as what? An angel of light. We talked about that last week. Verse 15. Uh, so it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Uh, in the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So Paul closed this section with a bang. And he closed it by saying that he's going to continue to make the necessary sacrifices for successful ministry. He's saying, I will continue to boast in the fact that I'm doing this for free. I will continue to boast in the fact that everything I have done, I've done for your good and not mine. Why? First of all, because I want you to know my motives are pure. But second of all, it's terrible for these false teachers when they see that they can't use that against me. And they also know it exposes that the whole reason they're doing what they're doing is for the money and for the profit and for the prestige. So in him not taking money, he felt like he could expose their false motives and emphasize his pure motives. Because, listen, the devil can look like an angel of light. Have you ever noticed in, in horror movies, they always make, when they're demonic movies, they always make them scary looking and like people's heads spinning around and levitating and, you know, green seeping skin and all this weird stuff. And you ever, the ones that creep me out, it's like when they move real quick and jerky and their heads like, you guys know what I'm talking about? You're looking at me going, no, moron. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, they make them like all quick and jerky when they're, when they're moving. <laughs> anyway, think about it. Why would the devil do that? Why would he do that? Is that going to make people follow him? I mean, let's see, I want people to follow me. How will I do that? I'll make her head spin around, make her walk weird and puke and, you know, projectile green vomit. No, I don't think that's what he's going to do. The devil wants you to be attracted to what he's offering. He's not going to come and try to be scary and levitate and stuff like that. That's for movies. He's going to come to you and pretend to be something he's not, like he pretended to be the angel of light. He's going to pretend to be something he's not. These false teachers didn't come in with pentagrams on them, you know, burning incense to big devil heads. They, I mean, they didn't come in doing that. They came in saying, we believe the same gospel they do. We just have a better relationship with God than they do. They came in making big promises and telling them that they, they love them and they were there to, to get them closer to God. They come in and like the devil can appear like an angel of light, false teachers can appear sincere and righteous. But I'll tell you one thing, if you know the truth, they can't deceive you. And trust me, eventually it always comes out. It always comes out. I've had people come to me all fired up because uh, something some, some in the ministry is doing and they want me to make a big deal about it. And I'm like, listen, know the truth, stay away from false teaching and let God be the righteous judge. Because eventually he will reveal what they're doing wrong. What's important though is that you know enough to recognize when they are. That's what's important. And so I know Paul got a little salty in this message, that his whole point was, you guys have got to get back to looking for the criteria God set aside for those who lead you. And that is that they're humble, that they point you to him and not themselves, and that they don't try to tear others down to lift themselves up. The only thing they worry about is lifting up the name of God. You've got to get your heads right, because by following this Greco-Roman uh, sidetrack that they put in front of you, it's pulling you away from God, and it will end up destroying you, and that's exactly what the devil wants. 
and the people that you're following are plants put here by him. That's basically what he was trying. I'm going to go ahead and stop here. We'll pick up there next week. But this is a good warning. So if you would, please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Briefly, we don't ask people to come down front or anything like that. But I do want to pray for you. And if you're not sure where you stand or you just need prayer, I don't need to know why. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. And I, and I will be praying for you. Bless those people. Because, listen, I can't tell you how many times when I ask this question, I'm thinking myself, I, I need it. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, again, especially when I see messages like this, there are so many things out there that the enemy is using to sidetrack us. From politics to profit, there's so many things out there he's using to try to sidetrack us and get our attention off what matters. But I'll tell you what, if we stand strong, no matter what's going on around us, God's promises apply to what we're doing. We need to keep focused, especially in times like these. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your mercy and kindness and especially your grace. I'm just amazed at the love you show us every day. I'm so confident, even when this world is crazy, that you're going to keep your promises. And I love the peace I get from leaning on those promises. I just pray, God, if there's someone who doesn't know you, doesn't realize the comfort that comes with walking with you, whatever's holding them back, just remove it. Remind them that your son died for them on that cross just like they are. You're not asking them to make any changes. You're asking them to believe you'll change what needs changed. And if they just trust that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, you promise they'd have it. And if they make that decision, I just pray they contact us. But God, for those of us who are believers, every time we turn on the news, every time we turn on the TV, they're either attacking you or trying to make us afraid. God, remind us that the greatest thing there is to fear, Jesus already took care of on the cross. And that's death. We have nothing to fear as long as we are standing with you. God, give us the the passion and the zeal to be serious about our faith once again, to know the truth and not trust in anybody else, to know it for ourselves so that we can be strong and effective witnesses for you. We just pray, God, as we leave here, you would keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.